Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the managing editor of Providence. And today I am talking with Samuel Goldman about his new book, After Nationalism. And so uh, regular listeners will probably know Sam from uh, articles he's written, talks he's given. Uh, he did a podcast a couple of years ago with us as well. He is a professor at George Washington University. And first off, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And so first off, we are talking about After Nationalism, a book you wrote. Kind of a, you know interesting topic about the role of nationalism, especially on the right, where we have more and more people talking about trying to revitalize this common, strong, national, cohesive identity. And in the book, you, I think, do a good job of talking about the history of all of this. And uh, I did a review in National Review, and so we will uh, post that in the show notes. And so my first question is, why did you write this book and why now? Well, I wrote the book because, as you say, there has been a revival of interest in nationalism, particularly uh, on the intellectual right over the last five to ten years. Um, I think that it had been brewing for some time before that, um, but was really brought into the open uh, by the success of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. Um, and it's been a surprising development in certain ways, um, because although I think that nationalist themes and passions have been an important feature um, of American conservatism, um, certainly in its post-World War II incarnation, the language of nationalism um, has been less familiar. Um, American conservatives have usually tended to prefer to speak of patriotism than nationalism. So this uh, great discussion um, was provoked uh, about four years ago. And as I, I followed the arguments, I, I found them increasingly unsatisfying. Um, not necessarily because I, I disagreed with particular claims or criticisms that were made about public policy on issues including immigration or trade or international alliances but because I thought they relied to an unusual degree on historical and theoretical abstractions. Words like solidarity, cohesion, and unity. So I set out in the book to think more concretely and historically about some ways that those terms have been understood in the past. Uh, with the goal of shedding light on the prospects for nationalism in the future. Um, and I conclude, as you discuss uh, in your excellent review, that those prospects are somewhat dim. I don't mean by that that politicians or parties or movements are going to stop waving the flag, either symbolically or literally nor do I mean that they will always be unsuccessful. I'm also not suggesting that nationalists or figures associated with the revival of nationalism are to be dismissed on any of their particular policy arguments. Um, again, I think reasonable people can, can disagree, um, and for the most part, uh, the arguments that have been developed in association with, with a revived nationalism are, are, are serious and worth debating whether I accept them in their, all their details or, or not. But I think the prospect for recovering one nation under God, bound together by a thick, shared understanding of what it means to be an American, is very unlikely. And the book is an attempt to understand why that is, and also to gesture in the direction of some alternatives that seem to me more likely to succeed. For the sake of terminology here, so in the United States, the word nation can have different meanings. And uh, for me, I've looked, especially since I'm more of a foreign policy person instead of a historical person or 
for a Christian realist, like a theological, I mean, I am, I read theology stuff, but my focus has been more on the foreign policy issues. And so within that frame, nation has always meant a group of people with a very strong common identity. And it doesn't necessarily mean a country, it doesn't mean a state, whereas in the United States, the word nation and state kind of get merged together. And so sometimes people use the word nationalism to talk about, almost it's the same thing as patriotism. Whereas for me, those are two distinct terms. And so like, how are you using this terminology? So I think the term nationalism is used in at least four senses um, that in some cases overlap, but are also logically distinct. Um, the first is as a way of describing uh, rhetorical or symbolic tributes to political unity and to shared symbols. So as, as I said a moment ago, to, to waving the flag, in effect. Um, this, this can take the form of what the sociologist Michael Billig called banal nationalism. Language, uh, images, metaphors that we don't really notice, but that appeal to the idea of a, a common political and cultural identity. A second sense, and this is the one um, that I think you have in mind uh, as, as a scholar of international relations, it's in the phrase international relations, really um, refers to externally sovereign states that are not bound to each other in ways um, that constrain their independence. And the, the ambiguity there is that that's not really necessarily a claim about nations in any cultural or political sense. Um, it's, it's really a claim about states, which may or may not have a national character. And I think it's striking that many of the seminal figures in, in developing um, uh, realist thought about world affairs were critics of nationalism as a source of political legitimacy, and in many cases lived in a world in which nation states barely existed. So for figures uh, like Hobbes or uh, Metternich, the nation is not really a substantial cat category. What, what they're talking about are independent states. Third, nationalism can refer to the relationship um, between the highest level of, of government and more local or subordinate institutions. And that's, that's the way the term nationalism was typically used in the second half of the 19th century in the United States. Um, the, the actual phrase nationalism um, was very uncommon if it appeared at all um, before the 1850s and was picked up in connection with the Civil War for the obvious reason that it was a way of asserting the, the power of what we call the, the federal government over the states, which were on this argument subordinate to national sovereignty. It had much less relation to uh, world or, or international affairs than to the internal constitution of the United States. And then finally, um, there is an understanding of nationalism as a cultural ideal that seeks to bind together a group of people, not simply under common political institutions, but through language, through religion, through custom, um, and often through some understanding of shared ancestry. And it's really this fourth understanding um, of nationalism that I'm talking about in the book, because that's the one that I think is least suited to American experience. And one thing that I appreciated reading this book is, again, coming from more of a foreign policy perspective and also having lived in Scotland and studied the Balkans, I've looked at nationalism from those countries' perspectives, and the you know the realist in me, like as you were saying, is very skeptical of the nationalism because to me nationalism is more about separatism, and to me from you know if Scotland becomes independent, that's not good for American foreign policy because 
that's not good for British you know, nuclear deterrence and so forth. And so looking at this from a American perspective is interesting. Yes, you were mentioning like the word nationalism came about in the 1850s and onward because of the debates in America. And I'm reading a review now about the international history of the Civil War, where the South was trying to argue we are a distinct nation and therefore we deserve independence. And for some Europeans, this actually was a very attractive idea. It's like, well, if the Bohemians get to have independence, why shouldn't these, you know, cavalier, Norman, non-Anglo-Saxon Southerners? I might do a review of that later, but it's a very interesting uh, book. So I appreciated being able to go back and look at these questions that I had considered from a more European perspective, from an, an American perspective and close to home. Reading this as someone from the Deep South was also interesting, talking about that, you know, the distinct regionalisms and the distinct cultures. My hometown, oddly, did not celebrate the 4th of July until the 1970s. And that's really because the town surrendered on the 4th of July, and so it did not want to kind of celebrate this day. And so I can see, in the same way that national identity in Scotland and other places has changed over time in the United States, it has changed as well, and I expect that it will change in the decades to come. And, but we are in a very difficult moment at this time. Yeah, and one of the, the goals of the book um, was to trace some of those changes. I, I think um, there is an easy and common assumption that until the day before yesterday, um, or maybe before the 1960s, there was a stable and coherent and broadly shared um, understanding of American national identity and American national purpose. Um, and what I try to show in the book is that that, that simply, that simply isn't, isn't true. There have always been rival visions of American national identity, which inevitably have been associated with particular religious, regional, cultural, and economic interests. And I think that if we want to think seriously, not just about this history, but about our own situation, we have to think about the ways in which nationalism is a vehicle for partial interests. And what I mean when I say that, it's not that it's necessarily cynical, but that political factions are attracted to nationalism or not, based on their calculation of whether it will benefit them. Um, and one of the, the changes I don't talk about much in the book, but that I think reflects this, is uh, the crisis of the 1850s. Um, we, we tend to think and are often taught um, that uh, the, the South seceded because it rejected national sovereignty in favor of a right of state secession. But that's not quite true. In the early 1850s, um, many Southern states were advocates of national sovereignty because they believed that they could compel the national government to assert and protect the right of, uh, the, the right of, of slave property. And it was actually northern states that were arguing for a less nationalist states' rights position, um, particularly in regard to the Fugitive Slave Act, saying we, we do not have to enforce not just this federal law, but it's actually a constitutional provision um, that states should deliver up uh, property um, uh, that's moved from one state to another. And it was only when that effort failed that... Southern figures strategically adopted the rhetoric of state sovereignty, while Northerners were attracted to nationalism. So these are always instrumental arguments. These are always partial arguments. And that's one more reason to get beneath the rhetoric of solidarity and cohesion and unity and ask what specifically is involved morally, culturally, uh, religiously, or otherwise. And so to kind of get into the book about the different, the three major nationalisms that you describe, you know, covenantal, crucible, or kind of melting pot, and then creedal nationalism, which the creedal nationalism is the one, when I think about the American nation, that's the one I think about. I think I, it was interesting because I read, you know, having read your book and written a review and then reading other people's reviews of your book, I think there was one that described creedal nationalism as 
nauseous or something like oh, this nauseous idea and it's like well that's the one i know and so and then like also like with covenantal we'll get into it but also like the covenantal is the one that i find most i don't want to use the word foreign but distant from me and i you know the, the fact that you were describing like in the south that wasn't very common and being from the south like that the idea of like honoring and revering the pilgrims and the puritans is not you know, that was something first Thanksgiving was something they did over there. It's not something we did as Americans. And it's our excuse to eat food, be with family and watch football. So to kind of get into some of these different nationalisms so covenantal nationalism, what is it? So covenantal nationalism is an understanding of what makes America unique um, that emerged from New England um, and was heavily influenced by the Puritan experience, um, although it was not a product of the Puritans themselves. Uh, as I discuss in the book, um, the, the first few waves of Puritan settlers really thought of themselves as, as English and at least nominally believed that they might return or be reunified with their English brethren at some point in the future. It was only um, in the 18th century that they began at least publicly to recognize New England as a, a distinct community that had certain connections to the mother country, um, but was substantially independent in its destiny. So this is a vision that, that arises from um, Reformed political theology that takes the biblical Israel as a, a, a model of a national community that is bound, as it were, horizontally by uh, shared bonds of, of faith, of, of religious commitment among its members, but also vertically as the community accepts a special obligation to God. And through the 18th century, this vision is expanded and in some ways modified uh, from a reference only to New England, which is how it was understood uh, in its initial phases, to a, a broader interpretation of what would become the United States. And you even see in, in the rhetoric um, of the 1770s arguments um, that the, the American states or former colonies, now, now states, are comparable to the tribes of Israel wandering in the desert to be unified under a divinely appointed, uh, appointed leader. Um, Washington in this idiom is often compared to, uh, to, to Joshua. And that's another interesting conversation, not to Moses, but um, to, uh, to Joshua. The problem with this vision, which I, I think lives on to some extent in, in popular culture, although in a very attenuated way, um, the, the success of Thanksgiving is also a consequence of the erosion of this vision. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. And as a result, we can enjoy it as an occasion for food, family, and, and football without thinking very hard about the historical or religious presuppositions um, of, of the Thanksgiving holiday. But it was still too closely associated with New England, and if not with the Puritan legacy specifically, then with hierarchical churches that had strong connections um, to parallel institutions in, in Britain. So the covenant could work for um, some Anglicans, it could work for, for Presbyterians, it did not work for the more individualist and voluntarist religious movements that beginning in the 1790s really began to, to define um, American religious life. And it did not work for the South and West, which following the Louisiana Purchase were almost necessarily dominant in formal political institutions. So as a result, um, the, the New England Covenant was transformed from a political program into a cultural program, which would be upheld and transmitted uh, largely through educational institutions, um, including higher education. And it's not coinc coincidental um, that, that even today it's at Harvard and Yale that we find um, the greatest uh, scholars of these periods and ideas through 
secondary education and the common schools movement um, of the 1830s and, and 40s, which sought to regularize education for children throughout the country in effect on a New England model. And finally, through what were called domestic missionary societies um, that were aimed to uh, convert not foreigners or, or pagans, but Americans whose Christianity was, was felt to be um, mis misguided um, and, even, um, and even dangerous. And I think it's in that sense that the covenant remains with us and that it survived really um, as, as the touchstone of high culture at least into um, the early 20th century and in some ways later than that. Professors love it because these New England types, going back to the Puritans, wrote hugely and wonderfully. And it's, there's a really easy people to write a, write a book about. But I think that the real experience of most Americans in much of the country, including the Deep South, but also the West, were never defined by these ideas in the way that the elite discourse tends to assume. Yeah, like for me, I didn't, I don't think I really experienced a lot of it until I moved to the D.C. area. And I think you said like the, the sphere of influence stretched from like northern, like Virginia up. And I think you said to the Midwest a little bit. And I was, I guess a couple of months ago, we run Christianity in Crisis articles from about 75 years ago, and there was one with John Foster Dulles where he gives a speech at Princeton, and he's you know talking in 1946, which to me is probably one of the peak moments of nationalism, or this great American idea, and he was bemoaning America, and he was like, things were so much better like 50 years ago, and I'm like, really? Like, you know, right around the time of the Civil War, things were great. Like, but to me, like, well, he was probably coming from this covenantal nationalism perspective. And if I'm not mistaken, so this Anglo-Protestant vision, is this what Hazoni and others are promoting or what is? Well, I think, I think they're appealing to a version of that. One strand of it, which, which they call um, Anglo-American conservatism. Um, one of the, the obstacles to understanding this, this milieu, and you mentioned finding it somewhat alien, is that it doesn't correspond well to today's political categories. And in some respects, covenantal nationalism had what appears to us a conservative character. Its emphasis on religion, its, its emphasis on a, an historical inheritance, um, and its, its cultural connection, and sometimes even cultural deference um, to England. All of that looks conservative to us. But it also tended to be quite progressive in its attitude towards social and political reform and causes including women's suffrage, um, temperance, and later prohibition, uh, and more extensive economic regulation um, for, for the common good all emerge from this tradition. And those things look a little bit less conservative. So I, I think that what some of these theorists uh, today are trying to do is use these materials to justify and and articulate a 21st century political tradition, which is, you know, a, a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do, but I don't think holds up historically. And really the argument that this was a definitive political tradition, particularly, as I say, in, in formal politics, less than, than cultural politics, only works if you stop the story in about 1820 or even 1800. Um, because in 1800, Adams loses and Jefferson wins. And whether you approve of that result or not, Jefferson represented and promoted a very different understanding of what America was and what America was for that appealed to many of the people um, who were left out of the New England Covenant. I believe you said, I don't have the quote in front of me, but that covenantal nationalism is a religion whose gods have fled the temple. In other words, like the, the foundation on which this could exist. 
aren't there anymore. Do you want to speak to that for a second? Yeah. Uh, so one of uh, the the writers who's been associated with these efforts to revive um, what they call Anglo-American conservatism with, with strong connections to the Puritan experience and to reformed political theology is Brad Littlejohn, who, who wrote an excellent um, response to the book that was published in, in Law and Liberty. Um, and, and he concludes by saying that he thinks um, that the resources of 18th century British Protestantism are not only necessary to understanding the past of America, but are, are the key to its future, or at least will be the key um, if we are to have a bright future. And I just find that absolutely implausible. I, I am not a prophet. I don't know what, what the future holds, but I am pretty confident that 18th century British Protestantism is, is a dead letter as a widespread social, political, and cultural movement. Um, and I, I don't say this to insult any, any of the people, some of them friends, who um, are, are engaged personally with those traditions. But that's just not the America that actually exists. And it's not the America that, that has existed, I think, um, for something like 200 years. And to talk about the other different nationalisms, so crucible nationalism, what was that and why did it fail? So this is a, a vision that we tend to associate um, with the um, eastern port cities that received waves of Eastern and Southern Euro European immigration um, following the Civil War, the new immigration, as it was known. And that's actually a little bit anachronistic because the image of the crucible or melting pot arises much earlier in uh, uh, the late 18th and early 19th, 19th century. And it's associated not with cities or with the new immigration of the late 19th century, but with this Jeffersonian vision of frontier expansion, um, which did uh, appeal to immigrants. Uh, Jefferson um, and, and his supporters relied heavily on the political um, support of immigrants, um, which is one of the reasons that immigration, even in the early republic, was a bitterly contested partisan issue. But mostly immigrants from Northern and Western Europe. And the idea was that these people would come to America, they would not remain in the port cities, but would move west. And there, in the experience of the frontier, they would literally transform themselves from Irish peasants or German smallholders into a, a new people that would include the original English or British influences but would not be defined by them. So whereas the covenant places the definitive moment of American identity in the past, the crucible shifts it to the future and says, in effect, we, we are not yet one people in the way that the English or the French are one people, but we will be given sufficient time and given the proper conditions for, for melting down these, these different ores into a single alloy. The reason why it failed, though, was um, because you had these groups who didn't actually become one people, and they actually started competing against right. each other. So this is, this is a, a paradox um, that I, I think is relevant to... Um, present discussions of, of the history of race and, and exclusion. So, so race was not very important to the New England Covenant, and that's because it was quite narrowly defined um, by religion and culture. So whether people were white was not so relevant because the question was whether they were reformed Protestants who were culturally English. And of course, there, there, were, there were many people who were white by, by the standards of the time um, who didn't meet those criteria. And there were also uh, people who were not white who did meet those criteria, although in, in very small um, numbers race becomes more salient for the crucible than for the covenant because it's a way of answering the question whether you can put 
all of these different materials into the pot and, and melt them down um, without the product being less valuable than the original contents. And this is, this is a question that obsessed um, uh, theorists of the melting pot, including Theodore Roosevelt who believed that it, it was good um, to bring in at least a certain amount of immigration from certain places in the world, that this, this would strengthen um, not just American politics and culture, um, but as he believed, like many of his contemporaries, physically build up the, the, American, the American people and the American character. But the wrong kind of people, he feared, would corrupt that mixture. Um, and that, that was understood in a very literal and biological sense um, as, as corruption of the blood. So the, the melting pot starts to break down first as the point of origin for immigrant shifts from Western and Euro Northern Europe to Eastern and, and Southern Europe um, to places for which most old stock Americans simply had, had no precedence or models for understanding, you know, villages in, in Poland or southern, southern Italy weren't even places on the map for them in the way that Ireland or um, uh, regions of Germany were, but also because of the outcome of the Civil War, which ended slavery um, and enfranchised nominally the majority of African Americans, but then raised the question of whether they could be fully incorporated and I mean that literally, I mean incorporated, made part of the body of the American people. And the answer of most white Americans was no. And as a result um, of these two challenges, the melting pot became less appealing, particularly among old stock elites who began to worry that the melting pot did not, was not molding others to their model. So they got melted down, but what came out looked sort of like um, uh, a, a, uh, an old stock uh, American, if not necessarily a New England Yankee, you know, what we would colloquially call, colloquially call a wasp. As the product began to look somewhat different, they became much more pessimistic about the prospects for melting, and as a result, um, shifted politically from the relatively liberal uh, attitudes toward immigration and racial integration of the 1860s and 1870s to much harsher um, restrictionist and segregation, segregationist positions um, by the 1890s and early 20th century. And then the next one is the creedal nationalism, which I've alluded to is the one that I think of most commonly. In fact, there was one article where when I'm distinguishing between nationalism and patriotism, I note that if you mean by nationalism, if essentially what you describe as creedal nationalism, I'm fine with that. Like that. But to me, that's also, you know, coming from the South, like, you know, the Southerners became Americans after the Civil War. I think it's been described as like the second American founding. And so to me, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And so that's the one I kind of latch on to. So what is this one? And you say it only lasted or the peak of it only lasted a couple of decades. Like, so what is it and why did it fail? So the, the, the creed or creedal nationalism uh, is a way of designating the idea that Americans are not bound together um, by religion and English culture and even ethnicity in the way that uh, the covenant presupposed. Americans are not in a process of melting together that will yield a uniform product even at some point in the future. Ethnic, cultural, religious, and other dif differences are going to persist. But the claim is Americans are connected by shared commitment to certain values of individual freedom and limited government and, and particular political institutions that are intended to uphold those values. Now, this is not an idea that was invented in the 20th century. Um, and we see in documents uh, like the Declaration of Independence and some of the state declaration of independences, I I declarations of independence, as well as in some formal rhetoric of the early republic, um, invocations of this idea. But it's really 
during the Civil War that it's articulated as a coherent theory of American nationalism. And Lincoln is not the only figure who, who does this. Um, Frederick Douglass uh, also made use of these themes. Um, but, but Lincoln is, is, the great, is the great symbolic figure. And that's why um, his, his speeches and other texts remain touchstones for creedal nationalism. So why do I make this claim uh, that it flourished in the 20th century? Well, there's the inconvenient fact that Lincoln and Douglas and others may have said these things, but no one was listening. After a high point of, of enthusiasm um, for this creedal vision during and immediately after the war, the bulk of American politics and American culture veers in much more restrictive directions in, in some of the ways that I've just been describing. And ironically, uh, it's Woodrow Wilson who revives Lincoln as a national figure and symbol of shared identity. This is something I, I think we don't appreciate enough, although as a son of the South, um, you, you, you probably retain this memory. In the 50 years that followed the Civil War, Lincoln was not regarded as um, a, a shared hero. He was a divisive partisan figure. Invoking his name or displaying his picture, his, his picture could not just provoke fights, but could provoke bloodshed for, for decades following the Civil War. You didn't talk about Lincoln if you wanted Americans to get along. Wilson, because he is a Democrat and because he, he uh, is by origin a Southerner, has the moral and political authority to rehabilitate and revitalize Lincoln. And it's Wilson who tries, not with perfect consistency, um, but I think with a great deal of, of success, to redefine and reconstitute American national identity around this Civil War reinterpretation of, 17, of 1776. That effort was not entirely or immediately successful. Wilson um, and, and his progressive allies um, discredited themselves um, during World War I, um, which was widely regarded in the 1920s as, as a mistake. Um, and American politics in the 1920s was characterized by what President Harding called a return to normalcy, a, a, a partial reversion to a more stable condition after the period of ideological enthusiasm associated with the First World War. But in the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, and his allies, who no longer call themselves progressives because that was not an appealing brand, they, they now call themselves liberals, revive these ideas as a way first of binding together the New Deal coalition which was ethnically, culturally, and religiously pluralistic and needed some sense of identity that, that could include all of these different groups and, and factions. Um, but they made even greater and more effective use of it as a way of mobilizing the country um, for a second global ideological conflict um, against fascism. And I, I think it's really in the late 1930s, um, as war, uh, again, war in Europe at least, um, against Nazi Germany looks increasingly inevitable, that the Roosevelt administration um, and allies in the media um, uh, and popular, popular culture really begin to appeal to this idea of the creed as, as the answer to the question of what makes America special and different. And they were so successful, partly because the mobilization for the Second World War was immediately followed by mobilization for the Cold War, which had a different enemy but was able to rely on some of the same themes of freedom and pluralism and uh, constitutional government, that this remains the default understanding of American nationalism um, for most of us today. You mentioned in the book, and I know from conversations with you pre-pandemic about you've mentioned how 
this nationalism required a good bit of coercion to actually maintain. And uh, now I can think of a couple examples. Like one, I don't think you mentioned in the book, but the idea of like movies were being censored. And uh, so you want to speak for a second about like how was this being maintained? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's it's coincidental that the, the creedal vision is associated at, at each of its periodic revivals of influence with, with military mobilization. In, in 1776, this is wartime rhetoric. It's wartime rhetoric uh, during the Civil War, when Lincoln faces the task uh, not only of, of convincing um, native-born Americans to uphold the Union, but also holding together a military force that was significantly reliant on immigrant um, and first-generation American manpower, uh, first-generation American manpower, and also uh, participation by African Americans. So there, there's an army in the field composed of very different kinds of people. If you want to keep them fighting, you need to use a rhetoric that is going to include and inspire as many of them as, as possible. And the same is true in World War I, World War II, um, and the Cold War. But periods of wartime mobilization are also periods of coercion, ranging from um, the arrest of dissenting newspaper editors um, under, uh, under Lincoln to the suppression, the very successful su suppression of the German-American culture of the Midwest during the First World War, um, which is a really fascinating and almost forgotten world. Um, you, you mentioned running old articles from Christianity and, and Crisis, and Reinhold Niebuhr was a product of this world who was born in the United States, but did not receive a day of formal education in English until he arrived at Yale to study for his master's degree. So he, he got through all of school um, and college entirely in German, and that was not an uncommon experience, but it's one um, that was altogether effaced um, during the First, the First World War. Um, and then into the Second World War, um, when popular culture was very closely supervised by government to promote unity and, and cooperation. And probably most importantly, something like 15 million young people, mostly young men, were placed under direct government control and military discipline. And they were forced to sit and watch training films, many of which are um, available online. You can, you can easily find them. That instructed them, you might even say indoctrinated them in a very particular understanding um, of who they were and what they were doing. Um, the most famous is the, um, the Why We Fight series that was directed uh, by, by Frank Capra. So it, it's not just an accident or a spontaneous development that the generation of Americans um, born later than about 1925 understands this as a national and shared conception of what it means to be American. That's, that's what they were told to think, and, and not just told, um, but in many cases required, or if not required to think, at least required to listen to these arguments. And so we start to see the collapse of this starting in the 1960s and 70s. And in my review of your book, I, my conclusion is it appears that the events of the Vietnam War, the rise of identity politics, or these different groups' identities and so forth, it doesn't seem to me that this is what caused the decline, but what caused the decline is really a regression to the mean. Do you agree with that, or do you have a qualification on that? No, I, I, I agree with that. I think that the period from about 1941 to 1965 is a truly exceptional moment in American history. It is not uh, as consensual and untroubled as we sometimes like to think. Looking back, there were really quite bitter and often destructive controversies on, on a range of issues. But if there's any moment in American history where, where it really does look as if Americans are becoming more similar in their habits and beliefs, political controversies are being sort of toned down from existential 
disputes to um, more limited policy uh, questions. And Americans uh, do, do share, at least in principle, some common values. That's the moment that you'd look to. But I think it, it's also a brittle and somewhat artificial moment that's the result of this long mobilization um, for the, the Second World War and for the Cold War, and that's sustained by very particular economic conditions um, that make general upward mobility um, at least a plausible promise, even if it wasn't realized in absolutely every case. But I don't think that was, that was sustainable. Partly because the extraordinary and broadly shared prosperity of the United States couldn't go on forever and, and didn't. And when, when things are good, it's, it's easier to be, to be generous. But also because there were ideological tensions within the creedal vision that could not be held on pause forever. Um, and probably the most important of these had to do with the civil rights of African Americans. So um, we, we often think of the civil rights movement um, as beginning in the 1950s and reaching a peak in, in the early um, 60s, but really it's a product of the Second World War, and it appealed heavily to the contradiction between the professed values of the American war effort why, why we fight for, for liberty and, and justice, and the reality of American race relations, both formal and informal exclusion of African Americans. And that tension was never really resolved. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, I, I think, was seen at, at the time um, as um, the sort of culmination of many of these debates. But we, we see now um, that it was only the beginning. And as I, I argue in the book, um, I, I think the race issue is what drives controversy about American national identity much more than I do immigration. Again, uh, People can have different and quite reasonable views on the appropriate level and character of, of immigration, um, but I, I just don't think that the integration of immigrants is historically a big problem in this, in this country. The issue has always been how to resolve the contradiction between the principles of the creed and the reality of civic life for the African-American descendants of slaves. And to move to kind of our current moment, so there are some who say that identity politics is the greatest threat to the survival of the United States. Do you agree with that or disagree? Or like, how does that issue play into this nationalism rhetoric now? Well, I think to some degree, identity politics is inevitable. And I, I look back in the book to the past when the identities in question were different, but in some ways even stronger and more culturally relevant. Again, uh, I, I think of someone like Niebuhr who spent his life in a parallel German-speaking world, which is almost unimaginable today, even in immigrant communities. So I, I am less concerned um, about so-called identity politics um, than some people are. Um, and I think, moreover, identity politics, under that term or, or another, are an unsurprising response to the thin and unsatisfying quality of much American culture. I mean, the, the, the things that are most broadly shared among Americans are not necessarily the most appealing things about America. And the, and the search for some more substantial cultural identity and affiliation um, is a response to that. And again, that's, that's really nothing, um, nothing new. What I do think is, is a problem um, is when people don't have vehicles 
to enact those identities in their own daily lives and look to national politics to provide them with affirmation and support. And that, I think, an extended republic like ours is just not set up to do. So in the end of the book, I, I gesture probably too briefly, as, as many of my critics um, have, have pointed out, toward some possibilities for, for managing this pluralism. But what, what dr- brings them all together is that I'm interested in ways to let people who have different visions of who they are and what it means to be American live according to their conscience and preferences and and traditions rather than encouraging them to seek um, a a decisive national political victory represented um, by a president who is somehow going to enforce their preferences on everyone else. And there are versions of this on on the left, um, and there are versions of this on the right, I don't think either is going to be very successful. Um, so I, I'm, I'm less worried um, about identity politics per se than I am about the demand for a sort of centralized, stable authority that I just don't think is going to happen. To kind of wrap up here, because I mean... We've been talking for a while. And I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm, I, as a professor, it's an occupational hazard to be very long-winded. Well, I think like uh, we had Rich Lowry on the Profcast about a year or so ago, and I think that was about an hour-long podcast, so we'll, we'll kind of match that. So anyways, so one of the things that, you know, when I see people talking about nationalism and revitalizing this national identity, it's really rooted into how do we understand history? And better yet, how do we make other people understand history the way that we understand our history? And I think like almost all of these nationalist projects are kind of rooted in this. The one exception I could think of is the Make Federal Buildings Beautiful Again, which actually I supported. I do too. Although although that was, that was mischaracterized um, by critics who claimed that it wanted to impose a, a single neoclassical style, um, the order actually didn't do that and did make room for different historical and regional approaches. Mm-hmm. And like it gets into this debate, but that's the only one that's really non-historical. And actually, I know some people who uh, are, were supporters of it and were terrified of the fact that Donald Trump did this because they support classical architecture and they didn't want Donald Trump to be the symbol of classical architecture just because, honestly, Trump never had a plurality of support. So like in the history, though, for instance, the Wall Street Journal um, in March of this year, they ran an op-ed signed by different former education secretaries. The headline was America needs history and civics education to promote unity. And they actually ran ad because I saw this many times on my Facebook feed on ads. So they were promoting this. You say like history can tell us who we were, but it can't tell us who we are. So why can't history fix our national problems? I think that the the appeal to history is often a way of evading these dilemmas, which, when we express our views, often lead us to find that we disagree with with others. So we we search for a consensus in the past that it is it is hoped will be less controversial. the The problem is that then the past just becomes a proxy for our present debates. Um, And I I don't know if this is uniquely American, but it does seem to be peculiarly American um, that we we can't talk about what sort of country we are or want to be um, without appealing to the ostensible intentions of of the Founding Fathers, which, by the way, is an interesting phrase. I mentioned this in, in the book. We think of the Founding Fathers as this unifying thread that leads us back into the past, um, but the actual phrase Founding Fathers was not popularized um, until the 1920s and 1930s and was very closely associated with the creedal vision because the founding fathers uh, we usually mean are those who enunciated uh, uh, broad political principles. They're not, they're not the New England Puritans, who were a rival set of founding fathers um, and were, were still regarded as such in parts of the country 
into the 20th century. So when we when we look for continuity and consensus um, in the past, we tend to find less um, than than we than we think. But I, I you know I, I just think that the these arguments about origins are not very very helpful. So I agree, uh, for example, with many um, conservative intellectuals and historians who say that the, the origins of the United States really do lie in, in, Anglo, in Anglo-Protestantism, not in the, the glorious multicultural melting pot um, that uh, some progressive historians uh, have tried to emphasize, and, and also not in, in creedal ideological commitments. But I just don't think that tells you very much about where we are today. So I think these arguments about history often become um, a diversion from the real question. As, as for uh, education, a lot of this gets filtered through debates about education. I think the search for consensus leads to compromises that are not satisfying to anyone. They generate exactly the kind of generalities that I found so unsatisfying when I was getting this this book started. Um, I think what we rather want is educational and other communities um, that teach and practice what they really believe, not what they have agreed to say they believe after a year-long series of community meetings. And again, to me, that suggests that we need more disaggregation of educational institutions to to allow these different communities to live and teach on their own terms, rather than seeking um, a a national consensus that I think is, is either illusory or has to be so general and banal that it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and with, with all due respect to the authors of this, this report, there's a similar report uh, that is issued and signed by the same kind of people about every 10 years. None of them ever go anywhere, and yet we feel compelled to keep trying. I, I'm saying, well, what if we try something different? I mean, to me, history is so malleable. Like, you get to pick and choose, especially when you have a year or a semester to cover something. You can pick and choose what you want to cover. And uh, you can then, you know, you'll have different people creating a different narrative. And so, and they can be true, like they can be about true events. Um, You're talking about like other countries. Before I moved to Scotland, I read a couple of different history books about Scotland. There was this one moment where they, both of the books quoted Robert Burns. One was very pro-nationalist perspective. One was a very pro-unionist perspective. They both took the exact same phrase, interpreted it in radically different ways about like, oh, like union with England is great or it's awful. And it was just like, to me, that that epitomized just how malleable people's histories can be to basically say whatever you want. And that's one of the reasons why I was like, well, this nationalism stuff seems a bit, um, I don't want to say squishy, but it's malleable. Yeah, I, I also wonder how effective any of this really is um, there are technological conditions that make it very, very difficult to enforce any common narrative. Uh, and we've seen that with regard to COVID and the vaccines, with regard to the, the election. And, and the same is true, I think, with, with regard to education. There, there are these intense debates about what get taught, what, gets, what goes into the textbooks. And, and that's that's important. I'm not dismissing it. Um, but those debates often ignore the fact that we all have Google. And it's not clear to me that ensuring the presence of a particular narrative makes all that much difference when students can easily type some words into Google and find an entirely different story. And that's that's frustrating. But that's the world in which we live. And so the last couple of questions here. So uh, this was kind of my conclusion reading your book that academics, writers, and the media class seem to think that they can drive what the national narrative will be. Reading your book seems like they have very little influence over what happens. For instance, you write that the idea of this creedal nationalism existed before the 
Second World War, but it didn't take off until the Second World War. And so there was actually other factors that drive the plot. So going forward, do you think that's kind of the situation that just modern states are in? Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I, I think that's particularly true um, of of political intellectuals. Um, another unstated assumption that I notice in many of these debates um, is that opinion journalism has the has vast causal power. And if you just say the right words in 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 op-ed, the world will change. And I, I don't I don't think that's that's true. And one of the reasons that war is so important in this story is that it provides an opportunity for governments and especially for the the national government of the United States to intervene much more aggressively and directly in social and cultural life than it would otherwise be able to do. So it's true that intellectuals generated some of these ideas and they were, as it were, on the shelf when there was an opportunity for government to use them. But simply writing books or, or articles is not going to make the difference. I, I do think, though, um, that culture, more broadly speaking, can be influential. And here I would point to the success of, of something like Hamilton, which is not a favorite of mine for all sorts of pedantic intellectual reasons. You know, this is not uh, an account of Hamilton or the founding period that would ever pass peer review, but it's powerful for precisely those reasons. So my challenge to um, cultural nationalists is if they're serious, they need to start generating works of genuine popular culture that reflect and convince people of their understanding of, of what it means to be American rather than writing op-eds and, and learned books. And that, that's not impossible. You know, you, you mention um, Burns, um, something similar might be true of um, the nationalist activists of the 19th century in many European countries whose, whose efforts focused on poetry and, and music um, and the, the advocates of creedal nationalism in the 20th century um, who relied on film and radio and ultimately television. If you want to influence the culture, you have to use cultural means. And there's a disconnect between these cases and manifestos and treatises about nationalism and the media that are accessible to normal people and that really do influence the way that they say the world see the world. And so you've alluded earlier about the you know the community of communities that you mentioned here that you don't really go into a lot of details in the books but like what do you envision in your idealized world what would America look like in 20 years time? I think it would be substantially more federalist allowing states to exercise their constitutional police power um, on a whole range of issues um, that have been nationalized and that drive a lot of national controversy. Um, you know, to mention only one um, that's currently in the news, the Supreme Court is once again revisiting uh, abortion. I, I hope that the power to regulate abortion will be substantially returned to the states um, and they will be able to use it in ways that reflect the preferences of their citizens rather than making this a perennial national um, controversy. And there are other issues on which that's true. I, I would like to see um, a more disaggregated educational system. The United States, for understandable historical reasons, um, is one of the only countries in the world where the determining factor in where you go to school is where you happen to live within very narrow boundaries. Um, I don't think that works particularly well for a variety of reasons. And the shift to online and more flexible education that was forced on us by the pandemic may also offer some some possibilities for different ways of organizing education. I, I would like to see um, regulations that limit the ability of religious uh, communities and affiliated institutions um, to manage their own affairs. I would like to see those, those regulations to be um, loosened 
if not altogether lifted. Um, you know, people people seek meaning and purpose where they can get it. And if they can't get it in local affairs or in voluntary associations, they will seek it elsewhere, including in national politics. Um, and my, my, my fear um, is that our national politics and especially our presidential elections become repeated existential battles, as we like to say, for the soul of America. And if that's what they are, then the future is dangerous. Because again, um, our, our extended, limited republic is just not set up to sustain that degree of pressure. But hopefully we can, uh, to end on a positive note, hopefully we can, uh, to me, spend less time watching cable news. I find that, to me, cable news both fuels and feeds on this constant Battle. Cable cable news is is in my opinion much worse than social media. Social media gets all the heat, much of it much of it deserved, but social media also ha has benefits that have to be weighed against the costs. Cable news has no benefits whatsoever. So I, I would be I would be very happy if um, CNN and MSNBC and and Fox News and and all the rest shut their doors um, forever. As a millennial who. Uh... Cut the cord for a long time. I just reattached the cord so I can watch sports, but not watching cable news, I think, was good for my psyche for many years. And deleting Twitter off my phone was also another good move. Anyways, but like getting back into like the communities, walking in our neighborhoods, I think in the pandemic, that was one thing that being around our neighbors more often, I think that to me helps minimize the idea of how bad things are. To me, it seems worse on cable news and Twitter than it does in person. I don't know if that's your... No, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right. And um, if you are interested um, in, in finding consensus or, or common ground or whatever other terms you prefer, it really can only be done in person um, and face-to-face. And -face. Um, it, it's, it's when we have to encounter each other as embodied, not just as avatars, we find ourselves, if not, if not compelled, then, then it's, it's much harder to mistreat and dismiss people. Um, and this may be a good place uh, to, to close. Um, if, if you are searching for national cohesion or solidarity, then what we need are not common ideas. We need common experiences. So the question is how those experiences um, can be established and institutionalized. And that's not going to be done by yelling at people on Twitter. Speaking about being face-to-face, -face, thanks for coming into the office today. First podcast we've recorded face-to-face -face in a while. And uh, thank you for talking with us and writing this book. And for those listeners who are interested, be sure to read it because there's more to get into within the pages. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark.